Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Abricotinos. We're picking up with a new hypothesis this evening, 28, and we are on page 235 if you're following along in the text. Uh, this The focus of this hypothesis switches to the practice of asceticism itself and what that looks like uh, for someone, especially at the beginning and uh, the uh, perseverance that one needs, as well as the resolve in stepping into it, uh, the importance of uh, in, enduring in it in order to be able to see and taste the things that are the fruit of the ascetic life. And often we find that we drop off in our, our practices before we even begin to see the fruit of them begin to emerge. Uh, and so one of the constant refrains in this hypothesis is to hold fast uh, to the practices. We begin with letter A, the life of Syncletica. Uh, and uh, she was one of the early desert mothers, actually four centuries, so very early. And uh, within the sayings of the uh, fathers and mothers, there's a good 24 or 25 of her, her sayings within, within the text. The Blessed Syncletica said that the struggle for those who come to God is great and requires much toil at the beginning, but that indescribable joy follows subsequently. Just as those who want to kindle a fire choke from the smoke and the tears at the start, but later on accomplish what they are seeking, so it happens with us in precisely the same way. If we really want to ignite the divine fire in our hearts, we attempt to do it with tears and toil. For the Lord says, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what, I, what will I if it be already kindled? Some people out of negligence bear with the smoke and put up with the toiling a little, but do not succeed in igniting the fire since they soon abandon the attempt and do not manage to endure to the end. And so endurance. And having a, a strong sense of purpose and commitment right from the beginning. And uh, I think this is why we have to look at the ascetical life as something that is a constant for us and not something that's episodic. There might be certain liturgical uh, times of the year where it's intensified, but nonetheless, it should be uh, a, a regular practice for us. Uh, prayer, fasting, vigils, study of scripture, spiritual reading, all the things that help us to order the desires and appetites and to overcome the passions as well as to grow in the virtues. And so we have to habituate ourselves, if you will, to the habit of uh, practicing asceticism and not to put it out at the margins of our spiritual life. We have to exercise the faith and be willing to, to put in the time and the toil uh, in order to see the fruit of it. From the Gerontcon, someone asked an elder, Father, why am I continually negligent? The elder replied, because you have not yet seen the sun. So again, uh, sort of like Syncletica telling uh, this young man, that he has not yet seen the, the fruit of his efforts. He's not yet seen the sun, the light that comes 
through uh, purity of heart or through the other virtues. And without having seen it or having tasted it for himself, this leads to a kind of negligence. A person will let off of that discipline, never having tasted the fruit of it or thinking, it as, thinking of it as having any value. Anthony wrote, we need a vision to love to make this irksome asceticism worthwhile. Right, and I think it's sort of interesting that we've lost that vision as Christian men and women. Whereas in the world, uh, we see this kind of asceticism that is really a natural phenomenon uh, embraced with great zeal. And we've talked about this before, that in every area of life, we see people embrace a kind of asceticism uh, in their particular field, that they're willing to make the greatest sacrifices to achieve a kind of excellence in the area that they're pursuing. So music, academics, athletics, uh, the arts, uh, willing to really make any kind of sacrifice for what they love. And once they have tasted for themselves something of the joy of what they do, that, that desire even intensifies within them. And I think our movement away from the spiritual tradition uh, and uh, moving away from the sense of loving virtue or loving the spiritual practices has left us so long not really tasting uh, the, the, the sweetness of the life of virtue and intimacy with God or seeing the beauty of it uh, within our life or in the life of others. And so what Anthony says here, we, we have to, to find this vision of love, to see the beauty in it uh, once again. And one of the ways that we do that is certainly through looking at the lives of the saints and those who are sort of the living icons of this reality, who did taste it, who bear witness to it uh, in their writings and in their lives. Uh, and so, you know, a big part of reviving uh, the practice of asceticism will be looking to the, the lives of the saints, but not just on a superficial level. Uh, we have to look at what gave rise to their joy and what gave rise to the, their great peace and their, their sanctity. And not just to sit in wonder of it, but seek to emulate it. The same elder. I'm sorry, an elder said, to compel ourselves in all things in order to attain the good, this is the road that leads to God. So to compel ourselves, there is an element of force, of doing things against our will, that it is not necessarily going to come naturally to us uh, to want to pursue this path. There are going to be mornings where we don't want to get out of bed where we're tempted to hit the snooze button, uh, where we are tempted to uh, break our fast. And uh, the snooze button, it has to be the most evil creation uh, in modern times. I mean, it really keeps people lingering uh, in bed for a long time. And I remember one of the first sayings that struck me from the Desert Fathers was leap from the bed in the morning like you're leaping from a bed of coals. And that was such a, it was such a vivid image to me uh, as a young man, I thought, okay, you know, that's, I have to sort of think of it in that way in order to spring from the bed 
uh, and not to linger there. And it's such an important moment to do that, uh, to turn one's mind and heart to God immediately, uh, but not to linger in that state of, of slumber where we're sort of half asleep, half awake, because we become vulnerable at that time to all kinds of thoughts, ideas. Sometimes we slip back into a dream state or sometimes we slip back into sleep altogether. And so we, we fall into a kind of sloth at that point. So ordering our sleep is also something that's part of the spiritual life. It's an appetite like anything else. And so certainly giving ourselves what we need, but not being excessive about it. The same elder said, he who forces himself for the sake of God is like a confessor of the faith. I've, I've come to love this little phrase, and it's come up a number of times within the Evergatinos. And uh, prior to reading the Evergatinos, I've never heard it used so, so frequently that those who compel themselves or force themselves to be obedient to a role, uh, to embrace the will of, say, their spiritual father, become confessors of the faith. They bear witness to the obedience of Christ, his desire to do the will of the Father in and through their ascetical life. And we often think of confessors of the faith as those who are really good teachers, those who can articulate the faith well, whereas uh, the, the fathers look at it in a different way. Those who are confessors of the faith are the ones who imitate Christ who live as he lived, love as he loved, were, are, were humble and obedient, uh, willing to uh, uh, engage in self-sacrifice, even at the greatest cost. These are things that bear witness to the self-sacrificial love of Christ more than words. Any comments so far? Carol Nye paper wrote, St. Jose Maria Escriva called it the heroic moment or minute when the alarm goes off in the morning. Indeed, it is for many people. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you have to have multiple alarm clocks across the room. If that's one little bit of advice I can give you, don't have the alarm clock next to your bed. Make it so you have to get out, out of bed to turn it off. Otherwise, you end up hitting the snooze button or, or accidentally turning the clock off altogether or the alarm off altogether. All right, number four. Some brothers asked one of the fathers, how is it that the soul does not run to the promises of God, which he gave through the Holy Scriptures, but is inclined to impure things? In my opinion, answered the elder, it has not yet tasted heavenly things. And this is why it has a strong desire for impure things. So again, this, this idea of having tasted something of the sweetness of the life of discipline and of ordering one's life toward God, that there is a joy that comes through the ascetic life. And uh, again, I think perhaps this is a hard thing to wrap our minds around, that discipline can actually uh, lighten the heart because it draws us closer to God. The, the more that we pray, 
the more that we order our desires toward God, direct our thoughts toward him, the greater our joy becomes. We begin to uh, taste something of the peace of the kingdom. And it's in tasting it that we be begin to develop a greater desire for it. We see it as lacking in our life. And so we begin to want it with a greater desire. So all these things are essential. This is a, actually a very good primer uh, in the ascetic life uh, because it talks about some of the, just the, the foundational principles that you know, force, compelling oneself, seeing and tasting that which is beautiful in order to desire it. Uh, all these things are, are key. You know, so long as we only embrace the discipline in a kind of disconnected way without looking for or desiring the right things, we're, we're never going to make much progress or fall back into a kind of negligence once again. Number five, my brother asked Abapoimen, my body has grown old, feeble, but the passions have not weakened. The passions are like roots full of thorns, replied the elder. This means that just as one who attempts to pull out the roots will cut his hands so much that blood runs from them, so also he who wishes to uproot his passions needs much toil and sweat. So the longer in our life that we've allowed the, the passions to take root, the more difficult it is to, to pull them out, to uproot them. And it is almost like pulling up thorns, that uh, there is great toil and sweat that, it, that emerges. And so if we've given ourselves over freely to certain passions for decades or the majority of our life, and if we've given free reign to our thoughts and ideas throughout the course of the day, the discipline uh, that is needed uh, is, is going to be great. And uh, I was reading one little text today um, where an elder was asked if the ascetic practices of, of Agrius Pontus were, were extreme, excessive. Uh, that he asked an elder, you know, a similar question to what we were hearing this evening. And I believe it was of, of Agrius in his struggles with the passion of, of lust in particular would stand in like a pool of, of cold, ice cold water with his arms outstretched in the form of a cross. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting reading along about this, that in other areas of our life, again, this elder was saying, we, we wouldn't uh, call into question something as being excessive uh, when it's embraced for another reason, uh, or we wouldn't call it fanatical. And yet where there is a saint who's imitating Christ in his asceticism, in the sense of dying to sin and self, and willing to, you know, be obedient to a prayer role in, in order to grow in virtue, that he's, he takes upon, he's willing to do these things uh, that push him to the, to the limit. Uh, this is not excessive and far from it, especially when we compare it to the sufferings of Christ on the cross and what he was willing to do for love of us 
And if we sort of look at our pursuit of the passions and our struggle with the vices, with the, the same sense of things, our love for God, our desire for him to lead a, a God-pleasing life, our love of the virtues, that all of these things would tell us that uh, it would be very hard for us to fall into excess in the pursuit of them, that we would be willing to sacrifice quite a bit in order to obtain them. And so these aren't extraordinary feats on the part of, of the saints, that they are really expressions of their love and their desire for God and the desire for virtue. And we have to stop treating them as extraordinary and uh, things beyond us and see them rather as, again, things that we are called to imitate in one form or another in accord with what counsel we receive. Uh, first, Anthony, and then Lee Graham. Anthony writes, is there some kind of, of hoe or spade available to cut thorns out without cutting our hands? Uh, no, uh, except, you know, I think the life of prayer and uh, the sacramental life, I think God himself has given us uh, the very things that give us strength to endure that and to and endure, you know, joyfully and with kind of peace that uh, already we begin to taste something of the sweetness of the, the, the intimacy that God desires with us through the sacramental life. And I think in some ways it makes us easier for us to endure uh, the difficulty of uprooting some of these passions. Lee writes, in therapy, ice water is used to help people stop cutting. They are told that whenever they get the urge to cut, to place their arm in ice water. Well, that's interesting. I, I did not know that. And, uh, but it is kind of interesting because they're replacing one pain with another. And oftentimes cutting is rooted in this desire to, to feel, you know, on a, on a level of emotion. And, uh, and on an extreme level. And so pain will often become that vehicle and, uh, or, or to deal with pain on some level to replace it with another. So cutting one's own, own flesh. And, uh, and uh, Lee writes, it re releases endorphins, right? It, it alters one's mind chemically and one's emotional state. Uh, all, this is not the goal of the ascetical life, simply to alter our emotional state, because asceticism could be used in that fashion, and often is. Uh, uh, asceticism actually within psychoanalytic parlance is, is one of the defense mechanisms that we can uh, put on ourselves great restraints in order to gain uh, control emotionally. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think it's, that's important to see as well, that our, ours always, again, is directed in a very personal way toward Christ and toward loving him. Okay. Let's see, where was I here? Abba Joseph said to Abba Lot, you cannot become a monk unless you first become completely aflame with the desire for virtue. 
unless you become indifferent to honor and rest, unless you cut off the desires of your heart, unless you take care to keep all the commandments of God. And so to become aflame with the, again, with the desire for virtue, that uh, again, this is not something that comes easy for us. And it requires not only the toil of certain practices, but to become indifferent to the things that the world puts before us, honor, rest, uh, as well as other material kinds of gains and goods, that we have to become, in a sense, indifferent to those things in order to have a greater desire for that which endures. Letter C from Abba Isaiah. My brother, do not be faint-hearted in any task that you attempt lest the activities of the enemy enter into your heart. For just as a dilapidated house outside the city becomes a place of squalor, so also does the soul of a lazy novice become a dwelling place for every disgraceful passion. And so do not become faint-hearted. Again, there, there's no uh, static position. There's no passive position in the uh, spiritual life, that we are constantly to be striving to, for Christ and for the life of virtue and seeking him to walk upon that narrow path. Otherwise, we are going to become vulnerable to the attacks of the, of the enemy or simply be pulled along uh, by, the, by the current of the times. I think, think we've all experienced that. Again, you know, we see the culture going in a certain direction, things put before us, everybody's talking about it, engaging in it. And we perhaps do not ask ourselves, is this something that leads me to God? Is this something that's going to bear fruit that is pleasing to him or the fruit of repentance that leads us to him in a greater, greater fashion? From Abba Mark. From Abamark, every man who has been baptized in an orthodox manner has mystically received the whole of divine grace. It is fulfilled thereafter through doing the commandments of God. The commandment of Christ that is performed for conscience's sake, that is, with a definite purpose, bestows consolation, which corresponds to the amount of toil the heart expends in fulfilling the commandment. So the grace of God has been given to us in and through our baptism, through our confirmation, through the reception of Holy Eucharist. And this grace is enacted in our life, takes on concrete form through our being faithful to the commandments, fulfilling the commandments, living the life that Christ has called us to live. And so the more that we are faithful to the voice of conscience, and the more that we fulfill the commandments, the, the greater the consolation that we begin to experience within the spiritual life. Uh, and so it's an interesting thing that, again, we, we often see a, obedience to the commandments as placing a restraint upon us. 
something that takes something away from us or takes joy away from us. Where what we, we are being presented with uh, by the fathers is just the opposite. That the, the more faithful that we are to the ascetic life, but also to obedience to the commandments, the greater our joy becomes because it draws us into a greater intimacy with God. When there are less and less impediments to our experiencing the fullness of that love and entering into that relationship, there, sh there should be a concurrent experience of great, greater joy. And you remember I mentioned that in Benedict's role, that he mentions joy more in, in, in his writings about the season of Lent than anywhere else within the role. That as they take up the greater discipline of the holy season, that their experience of this kind of consolation that Abba Mark describes begins to grow. And so the, the more one begins to pray, not only are you going to desire to pray more, but your experience of the presence of God, the strength of, of his grace begins to grow. And we've talked a number of times about the joy of fasting and the joy surrounding certain disciplines or the joy of certain virtues. And uh, again, I think this is very important for us to re recapture that there are kinds of negative connotations that have built up around uh, how we talk about the spiritual life. And especially around the, the sacrifices that we make in the spiritual life as a whole. That, you know, it becomes simply a matter of endurance of pain that seems disconnected in the minds of many from having any specific purpose. Like, I think it's much easier for people in our day to see in the asceticism that they direct towards worldly things, certain goals and an experience of joy. Whereas I think our, the way that we discuss the spiritual life has become so amorphous uh, that people can't see the, the reason for embracing it any longer. You know, the Christians just want to suffer or just say no to everything that's pleasurable in our life as human beings. And that what we are promised is, is a joyless existence. When our, our life in Christ should bring us the greatest of joys and the, 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 a kind of invincible peace that we begin to experience over the course of time. And yet, this is rarely how it's spoken about. Anthony writes, that is a Stoic understanding of asceticism. They have nothing to love. And with our, our formerly Catholic culture stripped of beauty to become a Puritan existence, our positive asceticism for the beatific vision becomes mere endurance. That's right. You know, when we lose this sense of the immediate goal, as Cassian put it, as well as the ultimate goal of the spiritual life and the ascetic life, then it does become a form of stoicism. And, uh, and so the immediate goal being purity of heart 
And ultimately that opening up the, the door for us, the possibility of experiencing theosis or deification, this radical participation in the life and the love of God. And so again, our understanding of the, the ascetic life should be permeated with this vision of things that God offers us all. And this is why we should likewise then uh, have this freedom to give all, knowing what he's promised us. And again, the more that we move away uh, from our understanding of the gospel, the more we move away from the, this vision of the ascetic life, we, we begin to lose hope. And hope is what allows us to hold on to the promises of Christ, uh, even when we can't see it or when we are going through great hardships and trials and carrying a heavy, heavy cross. Letter E from St. Diaticus. The path of virtue seems very difficult and tiring for those who are beginning to love godliness, not because virtue is so by nature, but because man, from the moment he is born, consorts with a multitude of different pleasures. To those, however, who can reach the midpoint on the path of virtue, it appears easy and very pleasing. For wickedness is subdued when one is accustomed to performing good deeds, and through the cooperation of the good, it disappears, along with recollection of irrational pleasures. Just want to stop there for a moment. So the pull towards sin or wickedness begins to disappear along with the recollection of irrational pleasures, that the imagination, the memory begins to be purified as well. And so the things that often pull us back into sinful patterns uh, begin to disappear slowly in our life, that the, as the imagination and memory are purified by the grace of God, our focus becomes more and more on pursuing the things that are of God and the, and the true joy, the enduring joy that it brings to, to our life. And so again, you know, this, in this little section, uh, so much that is important is being put before us that we can reach a point uh, if we remain along the path, if we toil, that we can gain a certain level of freedom uh, that has held us from the things that have held us in, in their grip for decades. And you know, mo most of that, the most difficult thing is, is imagination and memory of past sins or things that we've witnessed through indiscriminately opening up our, our senses to all the things that are sources of temptation for us. The more that we move away from that, the more we immerse ourselves in prayer, the more we uh, immerse ourselves in, in the study uh, of the fathers, but also engaging in the practice of, of love, of serving others, then all of those things begin to, to fade from the mind and no longer become what we desire. 
So it is very difficult in the spiritual life. And none of the fathers hides that truth, that breaking away from the pull of the passions, the sins that have become habitual, and especially those that are rooted in the bodily appetites, can be the most difficult and painful thing to do. But once one reaches this midpoint, once we have ordered those things properly and have developed the, the other spiritual disciplines, then one can move with a kind of swiftness and clarity of mind and heart. But I think in the formation, especially of the young, you know, this has to start right from the beginning of their life because uh, Diaticus says here, you know, right from the, our, our coming into this world when we're born, we consort with a multitude of different pleasures. And he, he doesn't say that all those pleasures are evil, but we, you know, are surrounded by so many things in this world. And if our minds and our hearts are not being formed by the ascetic life, then we are going to gravitate because of our, our sin towards seeking those things as ends in themselves. And so when, when does one begin the practice of asceticism? At the beginning of life, you know, the earliest of times. I remember in the group, people laughed when I said, Chrysostom, St. John Chrysostom said that children should participate in vigils, that the parents should get them up, have them say, uh, uh, you know, a, a prayer, and then go right back to bed. But to, to sort of teach them that vigils is something that has value. And, but, you know, we, again, you think of when, when children now begin education or the practice of sports or music. I remember watching my little nieces, you know, they, they, took, you know, piano and violin. And I went to one of the concerts and it's funny, they had like two or three year olds walk up on to stage and all that they would do was, was bow to an auditorium filled with people. And I think part of it was to get them used to being in the presence of, in, of a big crowd and to lose that anxiety, that, that performance anxiety. So they didn't even perform, they didn't play anything, uh, but they were teaching them what it was like to engage in it. This is part of playing an instrument and performing before others at two or three years old. And nobody bats an eye at that or says that it's excessive or fanatic, that it has becomes part of, part of life. They took ballet and they did the same thing in that too. So he goes on to say, this is why the Lord, when preparing us to follow the way of salvation, tells us straight and full of affliction is the way which leadeth to the kingdom of heaven and few there be that tra traverse it. But to those who want with all their heart to approach the keeping of God's holy commandments, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think there's, you know, probably most Christians go through a period where they doubt those words of Christ. My yoke is easy and my burden is light because often we don't experience life like that at all or the spiritual life. 
but you know, to be fit so perfectly uh, with the, the yoke of Christ and this yoke that lifts us up, the grace of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he's telling us that everything is given to us. Uh, again, this morning I was reading St. Uh, Mark the Ascetic, and he says that, that this, 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 the Spirit is given, uh, is, is one and unchanging and given to all, but given to each in, in a manner that energizes them in the way that they need to be energized to pursue what God desires them to pursue uh, and wills them to pursue. So there is nothing that God asks of us that he does not provide us the grace uh, with which to fulfill it. And to live again in that hope that God will provide us what is needed to be faithful in the face of temptation or trial or, you know, our own uh, weaknesses or, you know, tendency towards laziness. Uh, to live in, in that hope is, is a profound thing to help us begin to run in the ascetic life. When we are still at the beginning of the struggle, then we should put pressure on our will so as to carry out the holy commandments of God, that our good Lord might see our resolve and our labors, that we have the desire to serve his glorious wishes with great delight, and that he might then help us to fulfill his holy will. It is then that our will is prepared by the Lord for us to do what is good without ceasing and with much joy. That is, we shall then understand that God is he who grants to the soul the will and the power to fulfill the divine will. So God gives us the grace to do what is necessary. And when we take hold of that grace in small things, and that we show a desire within our heart for God and a desire to be faithful, grace is given to us in even greater abundance. When God sees a delight uh, for the commandments within us or the desire to pursue them, that we're willing to struggle, to walk upon that narrow path, then greater grace is poured out upon us. In fact, to the point that it's over overflowing. Sometimes in such a, abundance that it, it's the, we hear the saints speak of not being able almost to endure it because of, of the sweetness or the power of it. You know, Philip Neary, again, you know, in the catacombs, experiencing the Holy Spirit come into his heart, fl flinging himself on the ground, crying out, too much, O Lord, enough, enough. And, uh, you know, because this, uh, part of his mystical experience was that his heart expanded and his upper ribs broke outward uh, in, in the experience, that the experience of the coming of the Holy Spirit into his heart was such a powerful event that physically uh, he experienced throughout his life uh, this intense pounding palpitation of the heart, especially when at prayer and when offering the mass. And so God is not stingy as it were in what he provides us, uh, especially when we desire him and long for him. 
So any questions or comments on this section or anything that we've talked about so far? Okay. From Abba Isaac. Blessed are those who have girded their loins with patience and hope and have cast themselves into the sea of afflictions because of their love for God with simplicity and free from preoccupations, without even flinching at the waves that rise up and without fearing the roar and the roughness of the sea. These men are blessed because they are swiftly brought safely to the haven of the kingdom. They find rest in the tabernacles of those who have labored well and also rejoice with the joy which hope engenders in their souls. All who run with hope on the winding and uneven road of salvation do not turn back, nor do they insist on examining the cause of the unevenness. When they have traversed the road and honorably completed its course, then reflecting on the difficulties and irregularities of the road, they thank God that he rescued them from so many greater dangers without their no knowing how. Isaac, I've always found to be the most beautiful uh, writer uh, among the, the, the Desert Fathers. And how beautiful this is that, you know, as one begins to traverse the, the rough road uh, and the uneven road, that those who have a hope in God and what he promises run along this winding road without questioning it. And so they have a kind of zeal and joy and delight in the Lord that they keep moving forward uh, with, with great joy despite what they experience. And, and when they do reflect, what it reveals to them is that God was pouring upon them his grace and abundance and protecting them from certain dangers that they were unaware of. Which again is important for us because you know, often our life takes turns that are unexpected, where things happen to us where we wonder, what in the world is God doing? Or why would this happen to me? Or at this time in my life? And things such as that. And it's only when we pass through them and hold on in hope that we are then given the eyes to see why God took us along that that path that even when we had no understanding of it whatsoever he was guiding us along by the hand please explain casting oneself into the sea of afflictions seeking out afflictions uh i would say not being fearful of them that what has been revealed to us in Christ is the vulnerability of love, of giving oneself over fully to God and trusting his will in a fallen world. And so when afflictions present themselves to us, you know, our natural sort of defense, defensive move is to shrink back, to seek to avoid, to alter the circumstances of our life, to free ourselves from the things that we are facing. Whereas what we see within the lives of the saints is that when a path is put before them that holds 
certain difficulties and challenges that they wouldn't run from them, but run towards them. Knowing that again, it's, they are becoming confessors of the faith, that they are imitating Christ, but they also find him there because of the, the self-sacrificial nature of it, that love is cruciform. And this godly love is self-emptying. This is what we see from the incarnation on. And so the more clearly the saints begin to see that, the, the more that they're willing to stretch themselves out in that vulnerability of love without fear or anxiety. You know, we rarely want to endure a headache, much less, you know, the greater trials of day-to-day -day life. Those, however, who occupy their minds with many thoughts and wish to pass themselves off as wise, who indulge in the deceptions of their own thoughts and entwine fear with their spiritual preparation, and who strive to foresee the cause of things that might harm them, are, for the most part, to be found forever standing at the front doors of their houses. Holy Scripture speaks the truth about such ones when it writes, a sluggard, when sent on a journey, will say, there's a line in the way, a murderous line in the streets. They are like those who say, we saw the sons of giants, and we were before them as locusts. They are a people who, at the hour of death, are found without spiritual fruits, who always want to be wise but never decide to make a beginning. So again, you can see what Isaac was talking about in the previous paragraph, that those with faith run along that road, no matter how uneven and winding it seems to be, trusting in the Lord and in his promises. Whereas those who are wise in their own mind will gradually begin to calculate to do the one thing that true love does not do, calculate what, what it's going to produce for themselves. And so then begin to try to manage and control the, their day-to-day -day experiences and to avoid any potential affliction. I'm not going to go on that journey because there's going to be a line that eats me. You know, there's going to be something there that causes me great pain. And so I, I will not act. And, you know, Isaac tells us that a person can get to the end of their life uh, have, having produced no spiritual fruit because they were always thinking about the spiritual life, but not living it. And we've talked about this many times before, not being becoming dilettantes, you know, reading the fathers, you know, for the sake of being able to quote them and, you know, talk about them with others, but not really striving to interiorize what they teach and to, to live the life of faith and of hope and the vulnerability of love. Be careful that much wisdom does not become a snare before you and a cause of your slipping, 
but relying on your boldness, approach God and begin to walk in the fervor of your original enthusiasm on the blood-stained path without giving any thought to your body or entertaining superfluous things and thus being found lacking in the knowledge of God. The farmer who fears or who waits for favorable winds to come will never sow. Death for the sake of God is preferable to a life full of shame and indolence. And so, you know, if we wait until the moment that we are ready, then we are never going to make our way towards God. And uh, the images here, you know, again, are very much like what we see in the gospel. You know, a farmer who waits for there to be no wind before sowing is never going to get to the point where he plants his crops. And similarly, if, you know, we wait for our life to have this perfect peace before, or before we pray or wait until, you know, we get through these difficult weeks or months with our work before we begin to take up these spiritual disciplines or do the spiritual reading, we're never going to do it. You know, one of the most important things is that we, we, we don't pass up those moments of inspiration, that we don't place the Holy Spirit on a shelf and say, okay, I'll pick this up tomorrow and begin to use it tomorrow. We might not have it tomorrow, first of all, nor are we guaranteed that the grace is offered to us in that moment, if it's scorned or set aside, neglected, that is going to be offered to us once more. And so to take hold of the moment and what God is offering us in the moment. When you want to begin a godly work, first give a promise to God that you will not live for the present life and that you are prepared to die, being thereby indifferent to all earthly things. You should always keep this in mind, in which case you will be able, with God's help, to struggle and be victorious. Hope for the present life enervates one's mind and does not allow a man to make progress in anything good. But as for you, do not approach the performance of good work with dull thoughts about the world and about God, something which leads to laxity so that your toil may not prove useless and your efforts at spiritual cultivation may not prove arduous, but begin to do what is good with courage and unhesitating faith in God, since you know that the Lord is merciful and is ever ready to help those who seek him, rewarding with generosity and great bounties the good toil of those who have labored, granting to us his grace not in proportion to our work, but according to the measure of the eagerness and faith of our hearts. For he it is who says, as thou hast believed, so be done unto thee. So, you know, I found the beginning of this paragraph to be striking. The urging uh, uh, of us to make a promise to God to, as we begin this godly work, uh, to enter into it fully and not to be held back uh, by earthly things or concerns. And, you know, it's a, a thing that we 
often don't want to do, you know, to make specific commitments in regards to our prayer roles or promises to God that we hold binding for ourselves. That I, I'm, I want to live for God. I want to give myself over to the life of prayer, to the ascetic life. And so, God, by your grace, I promise to live this life and commit myself to it. And to do that with trust more in the grace of God and what he's promised, certainly than ourselves, but to be bold in that, because it shows where, what we truly desire. If we shrink back from that, part of the reason for our shrinking back from it is not just a lack of faith in God's grace, but a kind of resistance to really living that life, that we don't, in the deeper parts of our heart, really desire it. We don't want to make that promise or that commitment because there's part of us that wants to hold on to the things of this world that we know, that we know are, are really not a part of God's will for us. And so Isaac is telling us to do something that is kind of extraordinary, you know, to make a promise to God. And he also tells us that it's not based on production, you know, that we, you know, accomplish all these great deeds and things for the church. You know, it's really the desire within our hearts and our eagerness for him that God sees the deeper things that remain hidden to the world. We might be a complete failure in the things that we set out to do, but if we do them with love and we give ourselves over to them with an eagerness for God, then in his eyes, they're pleasing. Because we, we can make the spiritual life about that, you know, of building something that we, we feel has a particular value or that we think is pleasing to God. And so we, we can create this whole vision in our mind about what the church would look like or what would please God in terms of a project that we would set out to, to do or to accomplish. You know, that might all be sublimation, you know, our redirecting all of our energies to all these different things, but not necessarily uh, it, it's not necessarily rooted in our desire for the Lord. Ashley. Anecdotally, the parts of this concerning toiling and knowing without praxis has me thinking about a period of aridity I was experiencing some time ago. Adoration is usually where I spend my time when this happens, and I was so tired when I finally managed to get there one day that I assumed a position that I knew I could remain reverent in for a long time without growing weary of it, where I could remain still and quiet because interiorly I was anything but. I asked the Lord why it was so hard to pray, why is it so hard to hear him, and why I was so restless all the time. And after a while, the answer came very clearly, accompanied by all the extra things I had taken on, because of my restlessness and because of my lack of trust in him. And he reminded me that I am a jealous God. I think I'm very prone to forgetting this, that when the Lord has invited one along the narrow path, 
We're not supposed to pick up extra burdens and tasks or to take up other paths when there is a storm. I'm sorry. When there is a storm, when in reality, the Lord is only asking me to take shelter and not to deviate. Really well put. Um, because, I, and I think you're exactly right, that it will often come into our mind to take upon ourselves additional things, activities, projects, pursuits that we are think are pleasing to God rather than really seeking to give our hearts over to him and allow him to lead us along the path that he desires for us. And so we can exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of these things, and they might not have anything to do with God, but they might accomplish distraction, fatigue, and prevent us from praying. And, you know, the evil one, you know, can sort of tempt us into accepting all of these things that are set before us by others, even others within the church, that seemed, I should do that, because that would be fruitful, or others would benefit from it. And we can fill our schedule, and our life can become frenetic, but then we can drive out the possibility for prayer. Or we, it turns into this thing that we come to in complete exhaustion where we cannot be attentive to God. Let's see, I missed one here from Denise. As a mom of many children, how do I maintain an indifference to all earthly things? What does that look like? I have a hard time with that concept. It's a good question because an indifference doesn't mean that we don't pursue certain things that are necessary for life. And certainly being able to take care of a family has a certain responsibilities. And indeed it's part of your vocation and a part of giving yourself in love is to, to serve selflessly your family by taking care of those needs. Uh, but sometimes we can become overly focused and far from indifferent to all that the world provides. So it's not simply in providing for our family, but we want to have all these other things that promise us a certain experience of life or promise our children a certain experience of life that we think is important for them to have. And it might be all the things that the world puts forward before us, but are they things that are really going to endure or really make our children happy? or form them to be good, good people. And so certainly, you know, a, a mother or father is not called to enter into the desert. And, you know, you have placed in your care those who are vulnerable and have needs. And so out of love, you make sacrifices to do that. But I don't think it's a stretch you know, to figure out that a lot of parents miss that, the more beautiful things of life and family life, because they become hyper-focused upon providing these other things that aren't really, again, necessary or enduring. I think even Jordan Peterson, he's a pretty popular speaker, as you know now, and I, the, there's a little snippet out 
of him talking about that, that you never get back those early years. At best, you have your children fully for like four or five years, you know, and those moments never come back to you, you know, to see the things that you only see when they are that age. And so often those moments in their lives can be missed because we get caught up in uh, the anxiety of the things of, of this world. And so often those things can seem essential. But not necessarily so. So that brings us to 8.30, a lot to contemplate there. Uh, I think this is a, I know I say this a lot, you know, but this is a very important hypothesis, especially in terms of the practice of the ascetical life and the renewal of it within our own lives, most importantly, but within the life of the church. Why is it that we would pursue all these things? And in this short hypothesis, we're given uh, an answer that provides us with a kind of clarity and abundance. So thank you all for your comments, questions, wonderful as always, and hope you found it to be fruitful. And so have a great week, everybody. Why don't we close with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.